Now time to continue worshiping through God's word. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of First John chapter 3. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Richard will get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Just keep your hand up high so Richard can see it. John chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verse 17 to the end of the chapter, verse 24. So 17 to 24 of John, 1 John chapter 3. still hear a few pages turning, so I'll give you just a second. Some of you are just turning pages just to turn pages. <laughs> Some of you over there on my right. <laughs> just to annoy me, that's it. Pat. First John chapter 3, verses 17 through 24, John writes beginning in verse 17, But whoever has this world's goods, and sees his brother in need, and shuts up his heart from him, How does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him, and by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. The time of my study this morning is blessed assurance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this privilege that we have to be in this place this morning and to have your word opened up on our laps, Lord, and to know that your spirit is in this place, desiring to teach our hearts, to instruct us, to draw us closer into our relationship with you. So we pray that we have open ears to receive all that you have for us this morning. Lord God, we thank you for this building you provided for us. We thank you for just the provision that you've given for us as a church, Lord, to be able to meet here week after week, Lord, just to worship you and to study your word. Father, we also pray if there's anyone here that does not have a relationship with you, they're, uh, they're not born again, they don't know if their sin is forgiven, we pray that they would come to know your Son, Jesus Christ, as their Lord and as their Savior this morning. We thank you for this time, Lord. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Heard the story of Sir Conan Doyle. You know the name. He was the author of the Sherlock Holmes novel. He was a bit of a practical joker. And one day he decided he was going to play this practical joke on 12 of his closest friends. So he sent out an anonymous letter to each one of them with only these words in it. Flee at once. All is discovered. Now he thought that they would figure it out and they would call him up and they would have this big laugh about it and it would be great. But instead, within 24 hours all 12 of his friends had left the country. (laughs) Boy, talk about having a guilty conscience. What if you got a letter that said, flee at once, all is discovered, would you run? Is there something that you're afraid will come out? Do you have a guilty conscience right now? I'm sure we've all had a guilty conscience in our lives, whether justified or not, but sometimes I think we can be harder on ourselves than we should. 
Warren Wearsby had said this, quote, No Christian should treat sin lightly, but no Christian should be harder on himself than God is, end quote. I think there are those that, that are almost to take a perverse pleasure in self-examination and, and, and self-condemnation, and they always end up living with just these guilty consciences all their lives, and they've been robbed of any joy and any peace that God desires for their lives. Thus, John's reason for his words here in 1 John chapter 3. Because if you recall, John wrote this little epistle not, to, not only against a group of people known as the Gnostics, but he also wrote this to the church. Some of them very confused, some of them very discouraged, wondering about their own walk with God, wondering about their future. Some of them living under guilt and condemnation brought on by these Gnostics who were spewing their false doctrine, spreading lies about their walks with the Lord, about the assurance of their salvation, and leaving the church feeling confused, guilty, unassured. Their consciences were getting the best of them. So John here is writing to assure their hearts. And if you're taking notes, we're going to see three things this morning. Number one, the way of assurance. Number two, the way of answered prayer. And number three, the way of abiding. Number one, the way of assurance. Look at verse 19 first. John writes, And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Now when John says, by this we know, the obvious question is, by what do we know? Well, he's referring to what came before. It's a reference point. He's saying, by this we know from what's before. Well, look at verse 17 and 18 of what John has said here. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. John wanted these believers, he wanted to assure these believers that all they're doing to love and care for each other, it's just one more proof that they have a relationship with God and they shouldn't be guilty over not doing enough or not loving enough or not caring enough. Because John has been talking about proving you're a Christian. And the best way to prove you're a Christian is by what you believe and how you behave. There's a doctrinal test, and that's first and foremost, that's primary. But the second test, there's a moral test. The moral test is proven by the fact that you love God, that you're obeying God, and that you love your brothers and sisters in the Lord. So John says, how can you call yourself a Christian if you see your brother or sister in need and you do nothing about it? How much evidence really is there in your life that you love God if your heart isn't for those around you? And then I said, John uses this enduring term once again by saying in verse 18, my little children. Again, he's 100 years old, so everybody under him is a little child. But, but he said, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Understand, John never separates loving God and loving each other. He always keeps it together because the fact that you love other Christians, the fact that you would sacrifice your life for another Christian and loving God, they're, they're one and the same. They're inseparable to him. Now this brings us then back to verse 19. And by this, now, what we just looked at, we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Again, one of the reasons that John even wrote this book was that the, those that were discouraged, those that were weakened believers on the receiving end would know that they know that they belong to God and that these Gnostics would not upset them or cause them to be shaky about their faith. In fact, if you turn over a few pages, you don't need to. I'll put it up on the screen. But John writes in chapter 5, verse 13, These things I have spoken to you 
who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know, know that you have eternal life, then you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. You know, John uses that word know like some 30 times in this epistle. It doesn't say, I hope so, or, or there's a good chance, or, or maybe. Listen, no Christian should ever have to say, I hope I'm going to make it to heaven. Maybe I'm going to go to heaven. You ought to be able to say, no, I know. I have assurance. I, I, I can assure my heart before the Lord. Charles Spurgeon used to say, if you're not sure you're going to heaven, how dare you go to sleep tonight? Good warning. Now, that word John uses in verse 19 for know, it means to know by experience. In other words, it's something that's tangible. Something I could point to. That I know that I belong to Him. There's something that's tangible I can point to. Then there's the word assure, we shall assure our hearts before him. The word assure means to persuade or to pacify or to win the confidence of. Some have translated it to tranquilize, the soothe, to soothe the alarm of the heart. So let's put it together. What John is saying is we can know by experience, by something tangible, that we belong to God. And with that knowledge, we can tranquilize our hearts in his presence. We could, we could soothe the alarm that goes off that would cause us to wonder, am I really saved? Am I really a Christian? We can have peace, the peace of God. See, peace is something that Jesus spoke of often, and if you're a child of God, you have a birthright to that peace. Jesus put it this way in John fourteen twenty seven: Peace I leave you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Every one of us this morning, we have at least one kind of peace. But what troubles me is perhaps that we don't have both kinds of peace. The peace I I give you, the peace I leave with you, Jesus said. See, all of us as believers this morning, we have the peace of God. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You're no longer an enemy of God. You have peace with God and you've been brought together. You're no longer fighting Him. You've given your life to Him. But not all of you are experiencing the peace of God, that tranquil resting place where you know that there's nothing between you and the Lord and you have this confidence in His presence, assurance in His presence. Not all of you have that peace of God. In fact, one of the most common problems I see with many believers today and the reasons why they don't have that peace is is because of a condemning heart. Have you ever had one of those? That conscience that just robs you of your peace and you're not quite sure where you stand with God. You're not quite sure if He loves you. That may be a condemning heart. So look at what what John says in verse 20. He says, For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Now before we go too much further, you know, understand, let's take the word heart out for, for the sake of understanding this and let's replace it with the word conscience. What is our conscience? It's the inner man, the inner you that, that goes on inside of your mind. One person defined it as conscience is the inner voice that tells you the IRS might check your return. Another defined it as that still voice that makes you feel still smaller. Or you can quote Jimmy Cricket, who's saying to Pinocchio, when you get in trouble and you don't know right from wrong, give a little whistle, give a little whistle, always let your conscience be your guide. Now, wait a minute. Sometimes that's reliable, but a great deal depends on the condition of your conscience to begin with. 
You see, if John says, if our hearts or if our conscience condemns us, God is greater than our hearts, our consciences, that word for condemn there in the Greek is kat ag in osko, which means to find fault with, to blame, to accuse, or to torment. Torment even pronouncing that word. But, but I mean, have you ever been tormented by an accusing conscience? Oh, you know, just on you all the time. And the truth is, sometimes our hearts have condemned us at some point in our lives, either fairly or unfairly. But John is saying, if you really love the Lord, if you're practicing love to the brethren, if you're walking in truth and you're being obedient to the Lord, you can have an assurance that you have a right heart with God. If not, there could be a reason why your heart is condemning you. And at that point, you could be grieving the Holy Spirit in your life. Sometimes our heart is right in its incessant throbbing and guilt. Remember Edgar Allan Poe's uh, The Telltale Heart? The murderer, after retiring that evening, he couldn't sleep because he kept hearing the heart of the victim as it pounded in his chest. But he really didn't hear the, the victim's heart. He was hearing his own heart. And it kept him awake. The guilt of his condition finally led him to revealing that he was the murderer. See, it's a power of the guilty conscience. Or this letter that came to the IRS. Gentlemen, in close, you'll find a check for $150. I cheated on my income tax return last year and not been able to sleep ever since. If I still have trouble sleeping, I will send you the rest of the money. <laughs> Do you have a condemning heart? See, nobody knows you as well as you know yourself. You know your deepest thoughts, your, your, your feelings. You know what is really going on in your relationship with your family, with God. You're the first one to know if something is bugging you. You're the first to know if you're not praying, if you're not in God's Word, if you're not spending time with the Lord, if you're not walking in obedience. Because the more you grow in grace and the knowledge of the truth, the more you're aware of your spiritual condition before God. Now, on the other side of that, some of you, as you read your Bible, as you see God's standard and examine your heart, we become plagued with a sense of failure. And that, I think, is in part is because I believe sincere Christians... People who take their walk seriously with God will have a sensitive heart towards the Lord. David put it this way in Psalm 40, verse 12, For innumerable evils have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of my head. Therefore, my heart fails me. To every Christian, we all have this problem. It's as if there are three competing voices. It's kind of on trial, you know, with our heart as the accuser, ourselves as the defendant, and God as the judge. But we need to understand, again, that our hearts are not infallible. Our hearts don't always know what is right. Jeremiah 17, 9, I think we all know this verse, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, the answer to that question alone is God. You know, there are those, and the world will tell you this from time to time, just follow your heart. You know, Disney movies, they all, all their Disney movies are, follow your heart, you know? Have you heard that phrase before? Let me tell you this morning in the strongest way possible. Do not follow your deceitful, wicked, evil little heart, okay? I mean, think about how many people have followed their heart into a relationship that wasn't of the Lord and ended in divorce. Don't follow that heart. Don't follow that greedy heart. Don't follow that that emotional heart. The list is endless of the kind of heart you should not follow. You follow your heart in buying that car that you can't afford or that house or or leaving that wife, or leaving that husband because you say, well, I just feel in my heart that it's the right thing to do. Please, 
please don't follow that heart. Maybe that's not your problem. You're not following your heart. But your heart is still condemning you. You know, there are times that, that I expect more out of myself than God does. Let me say that again. There are some times when you expect more out of yourself than God expects of you. And your conscience comes along and it says, Oh, you lazy bum. You haven't been reading your Bible this week. You haven't been praying as much as you should. You haven't been going to church. You haven't been doing this. You haven't been doing that. Yeah, but I prayed today. Oh, it wasn't long enough. It wasn't long enough. You know, condemnation, condemnation. And a lot of times my conscience will come along and say, you're not doing enough for God. You could be motivated to do more. Now, what do you do at that point? I mean, do you say, cool at conscience, I've been baptized, or relaxed, I feel just fine, I trust in my feelings? No, John here, again, says in verse 19, by this we know, and we can assure our hearts before Him. In other words, he's saying you can have assurance. How? Well, this goes back to how we started. Number one, by the fact that the habit of your life is governed by righteousness and that you sacrificially love the brethren, you can have assurance. Let me say that again. The fact that the habit of your life is governed by righteousness and that you sacrificially love the brethren, you have assurance. Now, that doesn't mean that we're perfect. But it means that the overall consistency of your life is one of self-sacrificial love and obedience to His commands and living righteously. So every now and then when your conscience comes along and, and lies to you, your wicked little heart says to you, you're not really saved, you're not really a Christian, you're not really doing enough, you have something tangible to point to. Something actually in your life, you can say, no, there's proof. It's right here. I, I see that over the course of my life, I have lived very self-sacrificially. I've tried you know, the best to love my brothers and sisters in the Lord. I've been trying to live in obedience to His commands. Though not perfect, I still have assurance. That's a whole lot better than basing off your insurance off of a feeling, or oh, I think I feel okay, or, or, or some claim. There's something, some, something tangible that you can point to. We say, you know, I have seen my brother or sister in need, and, and I've helped them, and I am, as John says here, loving in deed and in truth. So I have assurance that I'm doing right. Now, please don't get this confused with salvation by works. That's not what this is saying. It's not saying, well, I see I'm saved because I do these things. No, you're not saved because of your works. In fact, Jesus said that many will come to me in that day and give me their little list of works and all they've done, and, and he will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. But once you're saved, the works that are produced by the faith you have in Christ, those works verify and prove that God has entered your life and has changed your life. That gives you assurance again. So when those doubts do come in, you can say, be gone doubts, be gone insecurities. Yeah, I know I'm not perfect, uh, but the general consistencies of my life is one of righteousness and one of loving the brethren. Then the second thing to do when doubts come your way is in verse 20, and that is to realize God is greater than our heart and knows all things. See, God knows that I brought my sins under the blood of Jesus Christ and that my desire of my heart is to please Him and to walk in His Spirit. God knows those things about me. God should know those things about you as well. Therefore, you can trust the Word of God as we're told in Romans 8.1, there, there is therefore no, no condemnation of those that are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's the place God wants us this morning. Now, later on in that, in that same chapter, Paul says in Romans 8.34, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. God doesn't want to condemn you. He wants to assure you. He wants to give you the assurance that you're His. 
So the next time again your conscience comes to you and says, you're condemned, realize that God doesn't condemn you. And you may say, well, God just must not really know me because I know me, and if God really knew me, then he would condemn me. Really? He knows the exact number of hairs you have on your head. For some of you, that, that's not a large number, but to some of me, you know, but, but he knows every single thought that you had this week. Every sinful whim that, that, that has crossed your heart, God knows. God is omniscient. There's no new information. There's no surprises. Nothing that catches God off guard. Some gossiper can't go to God and say, God, let me tell you what Tom did this last week. And God goes, oh, I didn't know. Well, now that I know, I'm going to deal with this. Well, God knows all things. He knows what you did last week. He knows what you'll do tomorrow. He knows what you did last summer. In fact, He knows what you're thinking right now. He knows you're thinking, what did I do last summer? God knows all things. Which is either a comfort to you or it's a terror to you this morning. Because for some, they put on a religious mask and they come to church, but God knows our hearts are far from Him. God knows if it's fake. God knows if it's real. But to others, it's a great comfort to know that God knows all things. Because although you mess up and although you fall down, overall God knows the consistency of your life is one of righteousness and loving the brethren and your aim is to please Him. He knows that. And again, verse 20, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Let me tell you this. And based on that, you can appeal to God on those terms. You can appeal to God on those terms. Think of Peter. Remember Peter? After, uh, when Jesus came to him after the resurrection, Peter fell the Lord, you know, three times. And there Peter and Jesus, they're meeting there on the shore, having this meeting. And once again, and, and, and Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, yes, Lord, I love you. And Jesus said, well, feed my sheep. Then Jesus asked him again, Peter, do you love me? Peter again, the second time, Lord, you know, I love you. Peter, tend my lambs. Then a third time, Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, Lord, you know all things, and you know that I love you. Peter appealed to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He said, Lord, you know what I've done, but you also know the depth of my heart, and you know that, that I love you. Yes, deep inside you know that I failed you, but you know that I love you. Peter appealed to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So the next time you feel condemned by your conscience, look to Jesus who knows all things and knows that he's a, know that he's a gracious God, a forgiving God, and if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. When your conscience condemns you, appeal to God like Peter did. God, you know my heart, you know all things. I appeal to you, don't let my conscience rob me of that peace and that joy that you want me to have because, Lord, I know you know that I love, love you. Now, I've met people who said, well, you know, I, I, I brought this before the Lord and I've asked Him for forgiveness, you know, many times and I know that God loves me, but, but, I, but I've just been unable to forgive myself. C.S. Lewis speaking about this said, if God has forgiven you, we must forgive ourselves, otherwise we're placing ourselves over God and His authority to forgive. What right do we have if God forgives us for us to say, well, I just can't forgive myself? Love banishes insecurity. God's love should take away any insecurity that you have that you recognize. That's why John says what he says. Look at verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. That word confidence, you might want to underline that right next to it. Freedom of speech. Fearless, confident, 
cheerful courage in His presence. See, when you're living the way that God wants you to live, when you're loving your brothers and sisters in a sacrificial kind of way, there's a, this confidence of freedom of speech in your access before God. You know that He's there. You know that He's going to hear your prayer. There's a, a story about a man who was up in the mountains in a national park wandering around a trail. As he's hiking around, he's just enjoying the beautiful grandeur around him, the trees and the sky's just beautiful. Beautiful day. Well, it's getting to be late afternoon. The darkness is closing in on him and soon he's feeling his way down the mountain by night. He couldn't see down this trail. He loses his footing. He, he falls down that ledge and he's on that, that, the edge of the, the cliff holding on to a branch for dear life. He couldn't see a thing. All he could hope for is that some other trailblazer was walking down that same trail to give him some help. So he's crying out and he's crying out for help. Still nobody heard him. He waited for what seemed like, like hours holding his grip, but he knew he could hold on, hold on no longer. He knew that he had to let go because his strength was giving up. So finally when nobody came, he let go. And he plunged all the way down. Six inches to the ground below him. Six inches from safety, but he's living in terror. Do you know that your conscience not controlled by Christ is not trustworthy? I mean, you you think you're going to fall big time, but when Christ controls your conscience and you find yourself in that place where you can't hold on any longer, you can rest assured that underneath are the everlasting arms of Jesus. That's why we're told in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so, we can have confidence towards God, which then results, look at verse 22, that whatever we have, whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. Now this brings us to point number two, the way of answered prayer. So we had the way of of assurance, now the way of answered prayer. Now, now, John's saying in verse 22 that whatever you ask, it's yours. Carte blanche, whatever you want, Christian, you name it, you claim it, you blab it, you grab it, it's all yours. No. Followed up by the context that is written here. Because he says, because we keep his commandments, verse 22, and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. See, there are prerequisites to the way of answered prayer. There's prerequisites to effective prayer. Three of them John gives us if you, if, if you want to not jot them down. Let me read to you first, though, verse 22 in the Amplified Bible. John puts it this way. And we receive from him whatever we ask because we watchfully obey his orders, observe his suggestions and injunctions, follow his plan for us, and habitually practice what is pleasing to him. So in order to have uh, the way of answered prayer, an effective prayer life, it's more than, God, here I am, and then ask in Jesus' name. No, there's a prerequisite. And the first one here, number one, I think is indicated, is to have no unconfessed sin. To have no unconfessed sin. That is, if you know that there's something wrong in your, in your life this morning, then you take it before the Lord and you confess it. That's what's implied when he says, if our heart does not condemn you. Uh, you know that we're free, we're free from any hindrances or any disobedience in your heart. That's a prerequisite to effective prayer. David put it this way in Psalm 66, 18, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. If I'm holding on to some sin, and I refuse to confess it, the Lord will not hear me. You can pray until you're blue in the face, but not here. You need to confess it. Second prerequisite, 
to prayer is obedience to the word. Because we keep his commandments, verse 22 says, and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. That gives us confidence in our prayer life. For example, the Bible teaches that when a husband is not obeying the word, he hinders the prayer life of his, 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 his wife, his family. Peter lets us know this in 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife and to the weaker vessel as being heirs together of the grace of God, that your prayers may not be hindered. So if you're not doing what God has called you to do, if you're not obedient to God's word, your prayers can be hindered. Listen, obedience to the word opens up your prayer life. If you want prayers answered, do what God calls you to do first. Then you can expect more. Then the third prerequisite to prayer is this. Number three, don't live selfishly. Again, he says, in other words, you're doing the things that are pleasing in his sight, that are pleasing to the Lord. Remember, in the book of James, he spoke of the same thing when he said, you have not because you ask not. And a lot of people, they stop right there. James 4.2. But they forget that there's a James 4.3. James says, you have not because you ask not. James 4.3 says, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. See, you're living selfishly. You're wondering why God isn't answering your prayers. You got this, 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 this sin of selfishness and you're kind of hiding it and you're going, God, how come you're not answering? How come you're, you're not hearing me? That's like the story I found of a young boy, 10, 11 years old, out in the field next to his house. He's at that age of experimenting with some things and he found a, a cigar that really wasn't smoked all the way down. He decided to smoke it. So he's puffing away on it. But he hated the whole experience. He was coughing and it, you know, it still got red and eyes were watered and it, but it made him feel cool, kind of growing up. He knew his father didn't want him smoking, but he was out there trying it anyway. But just then, as he looked over his shoulder, he saw his father heading right towards him. Quickly, he started snuffing it out and putting it behind his back. And, and dad came up to see what was happening. Well, to divert you know, his attention, the little boy saw a billboard close by that advertised the circus. So he said, hey, dad, look, the circus is coming to town. I always wanted to go to the circus. Can we go to the circus? Man, look at the circus. Man, I'd love to go there. Dad, what do you think? And this the father replied to him, Son, never make a petition when at the same time you're trying to hide a smoldering disobedience. Here you're you're asking me for something while you're living contrary to the way I asked you to live. You're hiding it by a smoldering disobedience. So that's the the way of of answered prayer. Now this this brings us to our third and final point, the way of of assurance, the way of answered prayer. Number three, the way of abiding. Look at verses 23 and 24. And this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Now, he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Jesus said in John fourteen sixteen, and I will pray the father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. John fourteen sixteen. So when you're born again. When, when your sin has been forgiven, the Holy Spirit comes inside of you and you become the temple, your body becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit. But John here is making it clear that there's a mutual abiding here. Abide in Jesus Christ, abide in Him, and He will abide in you. Jesus put it this way in John fifteen seven: If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. That, that word abide, it's important to understand. It means to be at home in. In other words, we need to replace a condemning heart with a confident heart that God is at home in our hearts, 
abiding in us through His Holy Spirit. Paul in Ephesians chapter 3 said that Christ may dwell in your hearts richly. Listen, if you fell far from God, guess who moved? God didn't alienate Himself from you. You did from God. See, it's about abiding in Christ. Abiding in His Word. That's why David prayed in Psalm 119 verse 11, Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Not in his head, but in his heart. Because in our heads, our minds, we can be forgetful. Incredibly fickle, always being bombarded with, with, with ideas and discussions and opinions and ideas and information. I can change my mind, you know, 100 times a day concerning a single issue. So can you. But it's not so, so true with our heart, is it? Man, all you have to remember is that, that one time when that girlfriend and boyfriend broke up with you, you know exactly how the heart works. You may know in your head that you're better off without him or her, but you still care for that girl or guy. Why? Because the heart doesn't let go that easily. That's where, why God wants the Word to dwell there. Allowing the Word of God to sink deeply into my inner being, my permeate my inner man. It must not just be written on paper. It has to be written in my heart. Then, as I abide in Him, I have an intimacy with the Lord and, and in His Word. So I think the greatest benefit for being a Christian, even more than assurance, even more than answered prayer, is knowing that I am close with Him, intimate with Him, and that there is nothing standing in the way between me and Him and my relationship with Him. Even though you or I may not sense He's working in my life, I know that He's there because I have that relationship with Him. There's this freedom of expression, of intimacy between me and my Lord. There's no roadblock of disobedience caused by sin, just an an instant uh, camaraderie and intimacy with the Lord. So, as we close, do I love the brethren? How is my prayer life? Have I confessed my sin, my failings? Have I hidden God's Word in my heart? If you can say yes and good to those questions, man, you can have that blessed assurance that you're doing great with the Lord. Keep it up. Good work. Jesus is coming soon. Keep your eyes open. So then it all comes back down to we just need to abide in Christ. Listen, surrendering your life completely to Jesus Christ is the answer that will affect your life. He will give you that assurance that you are a child of God when you surrender your life to Him. I gave my life to the Lord 37 years ago this month. I can't believe it. You know, 37 years. I confessed my sin. I surrendered my life to Him. And I tell you, that sense of guilt and condemnation from sin was immediately lifted. I still recall it as if it happened yesterday. It was gone. And from that point on, I knew that I had assurance. I knew that if I died, I would go to heaven. But here's the problem that we face today. Man does not like to admit that he's a sinner. Man does not want to admit that he's in rebellion against God. That's the heart of the problems that we face today in society. People today are so much more comfortable discussing imperfections. Oh, it's a, a weakness or a mistake or it's an error in judgment. Those terms are socially acceptable and almost everyone identifies with them. But an outright acknowledgement of guilt before a holy God, 100% acceptance of responsibility for wrongdoing, runs against the grain. We certainly don't see it in our political realm today, do we? But what do you expect from non-Christians? But for us, this kind of honesty before the Lord, that's the first step to the freedom from sin and guilt that God longs to give us and provide for us in the death of His Son, Jesus Christ.
Reminds me of a story that was just shared the other night at men's study about Frederick the Great, the king of Prussia. He was visiting a prison uh, one day and was talking with each one of the inmates. And the story goes, as he spoke with them, each one of them told him endless tales of innocence, of misunderstood motives, and of exploitation. Finally, the king stopped at the cell of a convict who remained silent. Well, remarked Frederick, I suppose you are an innocent victim too. No, sir, I'm not, replied the man. I'm guilty and deserve my punishment. Or turning to the warden, the king said, Here, release this rascal before he corrupts all these fine innocent people in here. Proverbs 28.13 says, He who covers his sin will not prosper, and whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Again, I want to close with this. Who knows what is going to happen in the next few weeks when it comes to the leadership of this great country of ours. I do know that it's the responsibility of every Christian in this room this morning to vote. And we should vote on principles. We're not voting for a pastor of our country. We're not voting for this evangelist to run our country. We don't have that available to us. Otherwise, we, we should vote for them. We need to vote for principles, those that are going to uphold godly principles. And next week, I'm going to show a brief video about that to encourage us to vote. Uh, it's, it's our responsibility. With that said, I know there's a lot of anxiety going on right now. But there need not be if you're a Christian. If you place your faith and trust in Him, then you can have assurance in your heart that God is in control. We can believe Romans 8.28, folks. We know, not think, not wonder. We know all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And also believe Jeremiah 29.11, where the Lord says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, said the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. You know when, when God said that to Jeremiah? When his people were, getting, had, were heading into captivity. For 70 years, the Jewish people would go through difficult days and tough times in Babylon. Yet the Lord is saying before, and yet I know what I'm doing. This may look brutal and bleak to you, but it's going to bring about a glorious end. What a blessed assurance we can have this morning. Now, if you're not a believer this morning, then you should be very unsure about your future, even terrified. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death, eternally separated from God. In fact, the Bible says that judgment will come to all those that reject Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made for you. They'll end up in a place called hell, a place where the Bible says there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's the assurance that a person that rejects Jesus Christ can have, that that's where they're going to end up. It's written in God's word. God's word does not lie. God's word is truth. But listen, there's a better way. You see, I think we all know John 3.16, but do we know John 3.17? John 3.16, God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. If you're here this morning and you have a condemning heart, and maybe it's a rightful condemning heart because you've sinned and you've been living in sin, and your conscience is telling you that, Listen, God, Jesus, God does not condemn you. He wants to save you. He wants to forgive you. But you've got to come to Him and you've got to confess that sin. Admit your sinner. Turn from it. And you can have that assurance of salvation. The assurance that if you were to die today, you'd go into heaven. The assurance that you're saved. You can know that. So if you don't, then I pray that you don't leave here without committing your life to Jesus Christ. I want to give you that opportunity. Let's, let's bow our heads and our hearts before the Lord this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. 
Lord, what comfort it brings to those of us that know you. And we can have that assurance, that peace in our hearts that you are in control. Lord, that we can have answered prayer, Lord, because your word says that if we love you, we love the brethren, Lord, that we serve you, we do those things that are pleasing to you, Lord, that you're going to move and work in our lives in an amazing way. Lord, we do pray for this upcoming election. We do pray for Christians that they would take seriously their responsibility to vote. They would not turn aside from this, Lord. This is huge. But more than that, Lord, we pray if there's anyone here that has not turned to you to receive the forgiveness of their sin. And maybe they're living under condemnation. Lord, your word says there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. So, Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that is not in your Son, Jesus Christ, are not born again, that they would not leave this place without making that commitment to you this morning. While our heads, and our, eyes, or our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, is there anyone here this morning you want to give your life to Jesus Christ? You want to be born again today? You want to have that assurance that if you were to die today, you would, you would go to heaven? If that's your desire, would you raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning? This is just between you and the Lord. You want to say, I want to give my life to Jesus Christ. I want to know that I know that I know Him. I want to know that my sin is forgiven. If that's your desire, just raise your hand so I can pray for you this morning. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for your grace, Lord, that it's, it's never-ending, Lord. We thank you for your mercy that's new every morning. We thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness of sin, that we don't have to live under condemnation, but we can live in the freedom and the joy of of walking in your spirit, abiding in you, and have that peace in our lives that passes understanding. We give you all the glory and honor and praise for what you've done in our lives. Thank you for this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.